You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan, and joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Uh, we're doing okay. Uh, not a lot of sleep last night. I sleep this night, but... Uh, but you're worrying about the Leafs. I'm not doing... I'm not doing anything, so... <laughs> you're worrying about the Leafs and Justin plays tonight, so you're, so you're sweating it out. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> well, our guest today was... Yeah, I'm just, I love rubbing this in here. Uh, our guest today was drafted by the Leafs the year you were traded here in 1980. He showed all kinds of promise, but like the blueprint of the era, he was never given a real chance to stick, but was good enough to win three cups in Edmonton, and I'm referring to Greg Muni. Yeah, I mean... It- you know, I watched him in camp and everything, and, and I loved the way he defended. He was a big, big body. He skated pretty decent, and but he defended really well. And then he, he, all he did was he moved the puck. He didn't, you know, try to screw around with it and make fancy plays. He would just get it and put it on the forwards tape. And, uh, you know, I always thought, wow, I mean, why is he in the minors? Why don't we have him up here? <laughs> Well, we're going to get into it, but here, here's a little story for you that I'm just going to leave you to give you an idea of how things are going in that period. Gene McBurney was a partner of mine for 20 years. He was also a hockey agent, and, and Craig was one of his clients. His last year as leave, Gene gets a call from Glenn Sater at our breakfast. This is in early March. Sater asks, what's Craig doing for next year? Of course, there's never, no, no tampering in NHL ever, is there? But, of course, the season was still on. Um, we'd like him. Gene, being the good agent, starts to dance with, well, he's frustrated, but the Leafs want him back. A number of Euro teams are calling and on and on and on. And then Seder just says, hang on, Gene, stop. That's all bullshit. Here's the deal. These guys have no idea what they have here. They're not going to play him. He's not going to play in the top four here. He ain't going to Europe. We think he's a good six to eight D man. He's not a top four for us either. He will never get that chance here ever in Toronto because they don't, as I said to you, they don't know what they have. And besides, this team is in constant rebuild, and Craig is getting on. However, over the last, he'll get his 12 to 14 minutes, and I need him for my second power play. I see him in that role for at least a half a dozen years or more. It's up to him. We are confident. Let me know. But that's his best option. And, of course, he plays another 15 years, seven in Edmonton, and wins three cups. <laughs> well, again, we've talked about this so many times over exactly. the years, way, even way back in the 80s. And- you know, it was a topic of conversation on a regular basis. And then, of course, since he went to Edmonton and won those cups and then ended up playing elsewhere and had a long career, then obviously the uh, conversation, you know, got a little bit more about, about that. And, uh, but even back, at, like I said, in 1980, 81, 82, I mean, that was a topic of conversation amongst us. Jesus. Well, we'll get into it with Greg, and we'll hear what he has to say, and I'm sure you know it, it worked out well for him, so we're happy from that standpoint. Not happy as Leaf yeah, fans, no, but I, happy for him. Yeah, I, I'm extremely happy for him because, you know, he had a great career, got to win three Cups, and uh, he's a great guy, and, uh, you know, uh, you, you never wish for anybody to do bad when they leave your organization. You always... You know, especially a guy like Craig, who was a great guy. You just said, you know, hey, go and have fun and, and have a good career. Fantastic. Well, we'll get in out with him in a few minutes. But 
We're recording today, uh, again, a couple of days early for the Leafs are playing the Jets tonight. Actually, they're playing them in the next hour. So, we'll, But the season is fast approaching its final push. We have gone over it many, many times. We've identified many holes in lineup that aren't unnoticeable. So with the trade line right around the corner, as we said, urgency is going to heat up. The role of Thornton and Kerfoot has lessened. Their ice time is shorter as the stages of the games get later on as we're moving forward into the end of the season. That has to be addressed. The clear lack of secondary scoring, save for Nylander and Hyman, is a glaring concern. JT may have found a winger with Galchenyuk and showing signs of possibly breaking out. The enigma in all this, though, is William Nylander, pure and simple. We all agree he's highly skilled, is producing at a consistent level, but his soft game is not going to cut it down the road. What do you do with him? You move him is the obvious answer, but the guy replacing him, if he doesn't produce and the other guys can't find the back of the net, then what do you do? Well, I mean, the first thing is it's going to be almost, and I don't want to say it is impossible, but it's very close to impossible to move him anywhere with his salary and the way he, he has produced uh, during his career so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, maybe, uh, you bring in someone to play on the other side that's a little bit more gritty and determined, and uh, you know then that makes his game a little bit easier. But I, I'm not really sure. I mean, um, their depth has taken a hit with the two guys they lost on waivers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you know they're going to have to do a lot of thinking and and decide what they want to do. And you know, I don't know, bringing a guy in from a U.S. team. And having him have to quarantine for 14 days and not playing, I'm not so sure that that's a smart idea with a short season and with not that much time in the, in the season. Well, they're going to cut that back to seven days. But still, I mean, you're buying this player for the playoff run down the road. So, again, it's it's a, a cap move and everybody knows the problems they have. So, we'll sit with interest and see how it all plays out. But. Well, exactly. And the thing is, if you're going to bring someone in, you got to move money out. Mm-hmm. And there's no other way of, of, of the Leafs acquiring a, a good player is the only way they can do it is they got to move out money. And uh, that, that is a big thing is that they're up against the cap and they know that. Well, I mean, so, you know, you know, it's 16 and 34 not going anywhere. You can't do anything with Tavares, and his contract is the one that is kind of going to stranglehold them for the next couple of years. That that's a given. So it falls back on poor old Willie. He's the one that takes all the heat for all of this, and you know he just continues to do his job. But unfortunately, he's in that predicament. He's in that spot where he's kind of the guy. I mean, if he's making half the money he's making, this wouldn't even be a topic of a discussion. They'd just be moving along. No, absolutely, I agree. And uh, or even if he's making like a million or. Or 1.2 or 3 less. I yeah. think everybody everybody would be okay with that. It'd be yeah. like, you know, because in the NHL today or in any other sport, you know, you everybody knows what you're making and your salary is tied to what you're doing on the ice. And if you're not performing up to the level of your contract and the amount of money you're making, then everybody looks at it and goes, oh, I get rid of them, get rid of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, Nylander's a heck of a player. He just needs to learn how to play with a little bit more grit and determination, especially down the stretch and playoffs. And if he could ever do that, I mean, he could be a very, very valuable piece for, for the Maple Leafs. 
Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So we will, as always, watch with real interest and the, the days are clicking by. So we'll see if anything does develop. Of course, social media is full of every trade in the world. And I'm sure Kyle oh, yeah. has taken notes of every one of them to, to follow through on them. So we'll see how that all plays out. But well, Squid, here's a couple for you in our, our segment on history and leaf, uh, leaf history on this day. It's April the 3rd, you're hearing this, so this is the day we're using. Uh, one of the longest games in NHL history, Ken Doherty scored at 104.46 of overtime to give the Toronto Maple Leafs a 1-0 win over the Boston Bruins in Game 5 of the Stanley Cup semifinal. That was in 1933. On this day in 1966, oh. here's one for you. Never heard this one before, I'm sure. Toronto used three goalies in the same game for the first time in NHL history in a 3-3 tie with Detroit. Johnny Bauer played the first period. Terry Sawchuk played the second, and Bruce Gamble played the third. Here's the best part of the whole story. Bauer took Imlac's place as coach in the last period. <laughs> That's the best. Okay, well, I... I don't know why they would use three goalies in, in a game, but well, Bauer uh, maybe it was. A, they got sick. Bauer and Sawchuk got sick. So they were sick. So they oh, had to come okay. out. And then Imlac just didn't want to coach, but he wanted to watch the game from the stands and take a different look. So he put Johnny behind the bench. <laughs> so you got to love that. That's, oh, that's old time hockey, as they talk about. Old time hockey is, 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 you're exactly right, Mike. And on this day, in two, for the younger, younger listeners, on this day in 2017, Austin Matthews set an NHL record for the most goals by a U.S.-born rookie with his 39th of the season. Hopefully he can do something along those lines tonight. And set a team rookie record with his 67th point, breaking a record from a good friend of yours, Peter Inichuk, who had 66. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Peter, Peter came in and had a real good rookie year and then subsequent good years after that but uh matthews is a i mean he he's a heck of a player i mean he's i mean we i don't even want to get into it because he he can do everything yeah that's he's on another planet so that's yeah that's that's for another whole subject altogether well squid i think we've we've come to that point to show i think we've got lots to talk about with craig today so why don't we turn it over to him and hear what he has to say Squid, our guest today, played close to 19 years of pro hockey after chosen 25th or overall in 1980. That's you got traded to Toronto uh, by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mm -hmm. Never really given a chance for some reason. Eventually moving to Edmonton where he was good enough to win three cups. Please welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Podcast, Craig Muni. Craig, how are we keeping? Oh, very good, I guess, considering the, the, new, the new world we live in, right? So how are you keeping uh, busy these days? Um, working, uh, for a family owned, uh, commercial developer in Buffalo, New York here who, uh, lease in sales. So keeps me busy and, uh, passes the time through this COVID, uh, circumstances we're all going through here. Yeah, that sure does. Well, Craig, we want to go through You're you're originally a Toronto guy and we want to, so what we'd like to do is take us through your early days playing hockey in Toronto, leading up to Kingston and eventually getting drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, I think Squid went to Ballard and told uh, told me he didn't want me there. That's why I was out of there pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is not true. <laughs> that is not true. We can tell you that. Actually, it's uh, well, my first year junior was uh, 7980. So the year before, the 79 draft was the first year they lowered the draft age to 19 year olds, and they went to just the six rounds. 
So that was kind of the assumption. I think everybody was going off of, um, I was 18 years old playing uh, junior hockey in Kingston, Ontario for the Kingston Canadians. Um, halfway through the year, they changed the draft age to 18. And uh, all of a sudden the agents uh, are coming out of the woodwork and trying to recruit the 18 year olds uh, that were probably going to be drafted that year. And uh, funny story about the draft, it was in Montreal back then wasn't planning on going and my agent at the time bill waters our current convinced me to go so they said uh philadelphia had the first last pick in the first round which was 21 teams back then so they uh, they said you have to go you're going to go in the first round last pick worst case scenario and i think i was rated in the first round up and down throughout the season so we go to the draft and philadelphia gets up for the 21st pick and uh, they get up to the podium. They, they thank the fans of Montreal, the Canadians, the NHL. And they start with their selection from the Kingston Canadians. So I'm thinking this is it. I'm getting ready to get up. Defenseman. Okay, this is it. Mike Stuthers. And I just went back down <laughs> in my seat. I turned to my parents and said, who, who the hell did they just say? And my, my, Mike was a, uh, a teammate in Kingston. So I sat there, started thinking, okay, where am I going? How long do I have to wait? And then the Leafs had the 25th pick, four uh, picks later, which was their first pick. They didn't have a first-round pick that year. And they picked my name, and I didn't even hear it. I was in my own thoughts trying to, trying to figure out what what now. So my parents are jumping up and down. And they're nudging me, go down. You got to go down. You got to go down. And didn't even hear my name. That's pretty funny. So what – Craig, what was a, what were you feeling when you know when Toronto drafted you at that point? I mean, being from from the area and everything, and uh, what was going through your mind? Like, you know, take us through that moment and and going down and meeting the brass and everything else, and and you know, what were you thinking? It was uh, it was a, such an exciting time. I grew up in Toronto. Was always a Leaf fan. Everything was the the blue and white. Um, minor hockey, the, the Toronto Marlies was the minor hockey team. Then I, I, don't, I don't know if they still are around now. Yeah, they are. Uh, they had yeah, those Topsies, Toronto Marlies, but they had the, the Leaf logo, the blue and white, everything was Maple Leaf. So it was every kid's dream to play on the, that travel team, which I never ended up doing. And then uh, to be able to play in Maple Leaf Gardens, to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, to, to have the chance – just to be in that rink in that dressing room uh, on hockey night in Canada every Wednesday and Saturday, it was a dream come true. I, I couldn't have asked for a better team to go to. Um, when I went down to, to the table to, to meet the, the brass and everybody there, they actually had this also the very next pick, the 26th pick. So they were kind of in conversations, getting ready for that pick. So it was kind of quickly hustled through there. And then uh, they made the next selection, which was uh, Bob McGill was the, the 26th pick right after me. Well, they also took Fred Breimstuck and uh, Darren McCutcheon the same year. So they drafted a lot of defensemen. Now yeah. coming from Toronto, you knew how the team was going. You knew the plight of the team. They were struggling along and there was lots of controversy and all that kind of stuff. So you must have had a lot of confidence going in the camp that you would have got a shot to maybe make this team as a D-man. You would think. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I really did think I had a chance. I, um, 
well, back then we had the rookie camps, what they're doing again now. I know they went away from that for a while. So we kind of had that process. I had, they sent us all to this power skating thing first. And then we went through the rookie camp and then through the main camp. But uh, you kind of knew, I guess, the position of where the team was in the standings. Uh, I think over the four years I was uh, with the, the Leafs, they didn't finish any better than 16 out of 21 teams at the time. So I figured at some point in time, I was going to get a chance to play. Uh, the best chance I think or opportunity I would have had would have been my second training camp. Um, they drafted Jim Benning first round that year. Yeah. And that was, that was the year they basically already came out and said, we're going with a, a youth movement. And I think they were going to give everybody a chance. So that the junior training camp before the leaf camp, I went to my junior camp which was uh, the Windsor Spitfires then and I blew my knee out so I came to Leaf Camp on crutches and the cast didn't come back until Christmas and uh, McGill, Boynstruck and Benning all made the team out of uh, training camp that year. Yeah so I, I think so, um, ba so basically so basically Craig they lied to you then <laughs> when they said we're going to go with all the young guys on defense they, they, they said yeah everybody except Craig I guess I would have had to cash in my crutches for a hockey stick to prove that I could still play. <laughs> well, after, you know, yeah. My first training camp, though, because I was drafted by Punch Imlach. Yes. Uh, and he had his, a heart attack my first training camp, if not to, and never to mm -hmm. end up coming back. And Jerry McNamara took over. Um, I, get, I don't know people, everyone has their own thought or say, say but whether Jerry wanted to, his draft picks to have more of an opportunity or not um, kind of seemed to seem to be the way it was going as kind of time went on after I was already drafted at 18. Well, if you think about it, I mean, that, that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you because, you know, Punch got sick, he drafted. And now what was anybody speaking to you through all this when you showed up in camp in crutches and then, of course, you look around, you see Benny McGill, Boynstruck, even Darren McCutcheon made the roster. He didn't play a lot. And there you are. You know, where's, what's your mindset thinking? What, what's going to happen to me when I come back? I'm actually going to get a shot here. And now punch is gone. Now the new guy coming in. And to take it one step further in 82. Now you get called up. You got to play yeah. New Brunswick a little bit. You got to play Cincinnati in the playoffs. So they thought that much of you to give you a shot there and get a look at you. But then all of a sudden, in 82 comes along, they draft a couple more defensemen than Gary Nyland and Gary Lehman. Yeah, yeah. What yeah, I, I thought, are you I, thinking? I, I thought I did pretty good when I went to New Brunswick and Cincinnati because I only played in the playoffs. I was, uh, again, 18, 19 years old. I only got in a couple of games, but I thought I, I did pretty good, held my own. So I thought I would at least get a, a look-see or an opportunity and never really, really happened. Um I can't remember how many exhibition games I played over the, the four years. It might have been probably count on one hand on how many uh, exhibition games. But uh, I, I remember the very first training camp, and we, Squid will tell you, we, we do the scrimmages. They break up basically into four teams, and there weren't a lot of guys on each team. So you're out there every other shift. And I remember the one of the first scrimmages, we had three defensemen, so you're double shift. <laughs> And one of the one of the other guys was a young guy, and I can't remember who the the leaf player was that was with us. The other young guy was going short shifts, and I remember one time sitting on the bench, and uh, Sit Sittler was sitting beside me, and he just slid down. And he said, "Just play 
and do what you normally would do. Don't try and do anything you're not capable of or try and show something that you don't want to expose anything. Just play your game, do what you do best, and everything will fall into place in time. And I, I've always remembered that from my first training camp when I was 18 years old through the rest of my career. And learn, learn what you do best how you can help the team and how you can, can contribute to the team and help the team win. And that's basically, I took that through my career. Squid. So you're, when you're in St. Catharines, uh, which is not that far from Toronto, obviously probably watching the games and, and that sort of thing. What's going through your mind when you're there and you're not getting that opportunity to come up and play in Toronto and uh, just sitting there in the American Hockey League for, well, the better part of your time with, with, with the Toronto Maple Leafs, like what is going through your mind? I mean, because obviously you're good enough to play based on who, who the Toronto Maple Leafs have on defense, but you're stuck in St. Catharines. Yeah, it, it was, it was very trying, very frustrating. I, I was there four years in St. Catharines from the, the first year they went there to the last year they were there before they went to um, Newmarket. So it was frustrating because you're you're basically down the road. So the brass was there at a lot of games, or the scouts were there at a lot of games, and you would see guys coming up, going down. Uh, some of the guys that were up coming down for conditioning or rehab, and not really getting a chance. So it was, to put it bluntly, it was frustrating, very frustrating. There's times where you wanted to quit, you didn't think you're ever going to get a chance, and worst of all, you never thought you're going to get out of the situation you're in. Well, I was going to say to you, Craig, uh, you know, the, maybe the writing wasn't on a wall, but I think there was some bad person standing out on Church Street over a billboard drawing a big sign dressed straight to you for some <laughs> reason. I don't know what you did, but Squid and I have talked about this many, well, many first, times uh, on the show. First of all, no, but hang on, you, all, you, you as Captain but, Squid. And he said the brass were down there all the time. Oh. <laughs> Our brass didn't know what the hell they were doing anyway, so it didn't really matter whether they were in St. Catharines or Toronto. They didn't have a goddamn clue what they were doing. So. Well, Scott, I was going to say, you pick up on this because you guys as the veterans sitting watching all this go on, watching these young guys struggle, which they were, a lot of them, and in goal, defense, some of the forwards were all young, mm -hmm. young kids, and you had a lot of veterans. What were you guys as veterans sitting around talking about watching all this unfold? And then a guy like Craig not even getting shot. Well, I, I think that was probably a weekly conversation. Uh, of course, when I got traded there, uh, training camp had already taken place, Craig's first camp. But the next year he comes in and, you know, and I were watching and, and everything else. And I think it was a weekly conversation. It was like, you know, here's a guy who defends extremely well. He doesn't try to do too much. When he gets the puck, he moves it, gets it up, or gets it around the boards or off the glass, whatever the, the hell he has to do. But my biggest thing was how good he defended it. And we couldn't understand why he was not up there playing. And, you know, that was something that us as veterans and, and guys on the Toronto Maple Leafs would talk about on a, on a weekly basis. By the way, Craig, your name came up has come up a number of times by ex-Maple Leafs who played at that era as to why you were not playing. And let's also not forget this. Between 79 and 81 alone, the coaching changes. Yeah. And it was Floyd Smith, Dick Duff for a couple of games, Punch, Joe Crozier, Mike Nicklock. I mean, all these guys coming in. 
And then, of course, you've got this batshit crazy owner who's trying hiring and firing guys, trying to keep his name on the front page of the paper. I mean, his name should have been Barnum after Barnum and Bailey's Circus as opposed to Ballard. I mean, so what what was going through your mind through all of this? I mean, did I mean, did you speak to anyone at any point in that time and just try to make sense? This is supposed to be professional hockey and this is all going on around you. Well, again, you got to take the the era we're in. And when you come in back then, it was it was unheard of. And it was the first year 18 year olds were drafted, 19 year olds. So we were we were kids. It's, it's so different now. The 18, 19 year old kids drafted now. They're schooled by their uh, parents. They're schooled by their agents. Uh, the training was, was different um, than what we went through as kids growing up to, to get to that level. And you basically, every conversation was, was through your agent. And so one thing I kind of learned was through the agent business was a lot of these agents, they have a number of players and you're not really privy to the private conversations they have with the GM or the owners and who's to say they're not going to trade off while well, you give player a an extra hundred grand and I'll, I'll talk to player B and tell them it's okay to go down the minors. You'll get your shot. You'll get called up yeah. type of scenario or take less money. And it was, it was, you didn't talk about contracts back then. You didn't know how much anybody made. It was all hush hush and behind the scenes. The other, the other thing I want to point out too, and it's very unfortunate, and it still goes on today with with minor hockey or any, take any sport for that matter, the kids are tagged with a label for whatever reason. And the one that kind of followed me mostly everywhere I went was I was not a good skater. And I, for a year and a half of my junior career, out of the three, I played in Windsor, which was a small barn. I played four years in St. Catharines, which was a small barn. So I think everyone thought if that was my label and I can only survive in a small arena because I didn't wouldn't be able to skate in the larger ice surfaces, maybe in their minds, that's what held me back. So I always knew I had to prove people wrong, that I wasn't going to be given any golden ticket or opportunity. I had to prove my worth. And, and that was that was the only thing I ever asked for throughout my career. And the reason why I went to Edmonton was for that reason alone. Well, I was going to say to, to make well, you feel any better. Oh, I was going to say to make you feel any better. Sorry, Squid. The Leafs took uh, Jack Bellaquette over Brian Trache because Trache wasn't quite as big. And they took John Anderson and Trevor Johansson instead of Mike Bossy because Bossy wasn't a good checker. He could score, but he couldn't check. <laughs> the fact they missed was if you got See, the puck, those labels right there. Yeah, if you if you'd have the puck all the time, you don't really have to check anybody, which was a, a, both of those cases. So you're in pretty good company, by the way, if that's what they're labeling See, you. My job, my job is just to get squid the puck so he could go score his 50 goals. <laughs> then I can jump on his back and celebrate with him. <laughs> yeah, I well, and and to, uh, to be honest with you, I would say probably. In the NHL at the time, there was probably, I mean, there weren't that many real good skaters at that time in the National Hockey League. Uh, you know, sure. I mean, if you look at the Islanders' defense, Dennis Potvin was probably the only, and maybe that uh, Pearson, they were the only two real good skaters. Other than that, they had a bunch of, you know, big slugs that that kind of got the job done defensively and. You know, they weren't Swiss skaters or anything. They just did their job in their own zone and they moved the puck to the forwards and they did the rest. 
Yeah, that's what that's why I, I really admire uh, Boria Salming and how he played because he was so smooth and fluid skater, so smooth with the puck back then, and that was a rarity to see that and a pleasure to to be able to watch him do it. And then then when I was up from time to time to watch him do it in a live game, it was like it was like magical. Well, Squid, you lived it every day, so you got. To- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he he was. Uh... You know, I, I think a lot of people didn't realize uh, how good of a player he was, how good he was defensively as well as yeah. he was offensively. And I, I think a lot of people overlook his defensive play because of the offense. Uh, but, I mean, I got to tell you right now, I don't think there was too many defensemen in the National Hockey League that were as good as him defensively. Yeah, I would have put him against anybody at that time. Yeah. Now, um, Craig, you spent six years and you did make a comment already that it was getting very, you're getting, you know, your, your, obviously your, your self-esteem is, is just not there. And I mean, obviously in your heart of hearts, you knew you were good enough to play, but did it finally just come to the point enough is enough and is it time to move on? And, or was it just going to be one of these anomalies of life that that opportunity just may or may not come? And then all of a sudden Glenn Sather comes knocking. So how did that all unfold? Yeah, it's, 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 kind of unraveled that way but it's like as much as you want to get out or leave you're you're at the mercy of the nhl team that owns your rights and you have no rights to move or no ability to move unless they trade you or you get into free agency so my my last year in st Catharines, which was my fourth year and i don't think they even have it anymore they they offered me a termination contract so basically at the end of that season, I was an unrestricted free agent. Um, I was free to sign with anybody I want and no compensation going back to Toronto. So I was having a good year, uh, that year in St. Catharines. The last month of the season, Toronto called me up and uh, actually John Brophy and uh, um, Gary LaRiviere were my the coach and assistant coach and Bims was my, uh, my uh, partner on right D. Uh, so Claire Alexander was the assistant coach in Toronto then the, that year, who was my head coach the year before. So the, the last month of the season, Toronto called me up and after a practice, Claire called me in his office and said, the Leafs want to offer you a new, a new deal, multi-year deal. And I already heard the rumor that, uh, um, John Brophy and Bims were going to be moving up as the coach and, and assistant coach for the Leafs the following year. And I told Claire, I said, I was honest with him. I said, you know what? I'm having a good year. My agent said there's about eight teams that are interested that want to talk come July 1. So I said, I'm flattered that the Leafs want to offer me a contract now, but it's so late in the year. I would, wouldn't do myself justice by not listening to the other teams. So go to practice the following day at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, get called in after practice, get sent back down to St. Catharines to finish the year, never came back. <laughs> so I knew right then and there that I wasn't going to even listen to what the lease had to offer. And I thought maybe with uh, the coaching change, I might get an opportunity. So I had to weigh that how much, how much say would uh, Brophy and Bims have versus getting out for another opportunity? So during that time frame, and that was where the only thing I asked from those eight teams was I didn't 
want a one-way contract. I didn't care what the money was. I only wanted to play half the exhibition games. That was the only guarantee I wanted. And of all the eight teams, Slats said, I can't give it to you in writing, but you have my word and my handshake. And I, uh, I took him for his word. That was the year the Oilers lost to uh, Calgary on the Steve Smith uh, bank in off of Grant Fear into the net. So I looked at the Oilers roster and I figured if they're ever going to make changes, next year is the year. And they had an aging defenseman. And when you say aging for hockey back then, late 20s, early 30s was aging. Uh, they had uh, uh, Randy Gregg, Lee Fogland, Charlie Huddy, Don Jackson, uh, that were all late 20s or 30, and they just lost the cup. Larry Melnick was in Halifax, which was Edmonton's farm team. He was the first call up every time a defenseman went down. He just signed with the Bruins. So I kind of figured worst case scenario is if I have to go to Halifax, I'll be the first call up. And then I can parlay that into another contract just by showing I can play in the league. So I, I end up going to training camp that year. And uh, Don, Don Jackson gets traded during an exhibition game, gets pulled out of the dressing room. Randy Gregg retired. And then Slats came up to me and asked if I could play the right side, uh, right D. And I, I've only played the lefty pretty much my whole life. Told him I could. And he put me with Kevin Lowe, who was uh, Lee Fogland's partner for, for years. We clicked together. I played over half the exhibition games. And then Foggy and Huddy were sitting out at the beginning of the year. And then uh, they finally traded Foggy to Buffalo and Huddy worked his way back in. Well, they had a guy by, I think a guy wearing number 99 on that team too. So that must've gave you a little yeah. confidence that these guys may have a chance to win. And there's a couple other guys playing along <laughs> with them. I, don't, I forgot his name, but. Yeah. Well, that, that, that was part of the reason by going there. Cause if, if I go to Halifax, get a chance to play on a good team, get a chance to perform, then maybe I can, I could parlay it into a long-term deal somewhere else and, and extend my career. But it worked out that I made the team out of training camp. Um, and it just, Won three cups in my first four years there. How good is that? I mean, wow. now beside, go ahead, uh, go ahead, Squid. Uh, how did it feel? Like, of course, what you went through in Toronto, obviously, which I thought was a travesty that, that you never played with the Maple Leafs on a regular basis. And then you get an opportunity to go to ultimately what might be the best hockey club in the league. And then you win three Stanley Cups. So, like, what are you thinking after that? Like, I mean, obviously, you you know, because then the conversations that we had after you left and went to Edmonton became even bigger because it was like, you know, he couldn't play here, but he's going out there and he's winning Stanley Cups. Like, what the hell is wrong with this pitcher? Yeah, but you know what? It, it, you've been around the game a lot. It's... And I heard people talk about on the radio today about opportunity. And that was my one opportunity to prove and show. And they don't always come around and they don't present themselves always like that to everybody, but you really have to be ready for that opportunity to take advantage of it. Um, and like, just here's a quick slack story, just because back in that day too, if you screwed up on the ice, 
they sat you down on the bench and you sat your ass there and didn't play the rest of the game. You were benched. So my very first game in Toronto was early in the year. And I started the, the game and the first faceoff was in the, the Leafs end. We win the draw back to me. I wind up for a slap shot. Clarkie comes, is coming towards me. I hit him in the shin pads with a shot. They go down two on one and score. And I'm thinking, fuck. <laughs> first game in Toronto, I got my parents there, my family there. I want to stick it up the Leafs ass. And this is how I start the game. Now I'm going to be sitting on the bench. Well, I'm going to be benched. I won't even see the ice the rest of the game. So I'm, after line change, I go to the bench. I'm sitting there. And I'm looking out the side. I'm waiting for Slats to come down and say something. He doesn't say anything. And I go do my regular shift. And then the period ended, we go in the dressing room. And I'm sitting down there. I'm getting some of my top equipment off. And Slats came right in the dressing room, came right at me. And he said, you know what you did wrong? I said, yeah. He said, don't let it happen again. And that was it. So well, it, it, it was so different than what you were accustomed to in that time frame that if you screwed up, you got benched, especially as a young kid. You didn't get a chance to redeem yourself. Well, I was going to ask you, Craig, because that was one of the things I was going to say. Did he sit you down and talk to you and give you some reassurance? Because let's face it, your confidence level, even though you got the boost playing for the best club in the National Hockey League, would still be pretty fragile after we've just gone through the last six years in Toronto. So good on him to recognize that in a way to not really come at you hard and give you a little bit of rope. And it looks like you took advantage of it. Yeah, Slats was good that way. He he was really good with the players. He was really good with giving guys opportunity and second chances. You could probably go through some half of the roster and guys that were screw-ups or had something terrible happen in their lives or with another organization, and he gave them an opportunity. But I kind of knew from the beginning when I made the team it was it was different even though you were expecting at that time, I was expecting the worst, but you knew it was a different situation and um, kind of had some security because at a training camp, the last road trip training camp ended, uh, Gretz came up to me and sat beside me and shook my hand and said, congratulations, you made the team. Uh, Slats wants to talk to you tomorrow when we get back to Edmonton. So I figured he's going to tell me, made the team, go find a, a house. And he threw a surprise at me that uh, Ramo Suminen was on the team back then, but he played enough games that he had to be protected for the waiver draft. And I was in the same boat because I was already 24 and had enough games that they had to protect me or lose me. So Slats, being Slats, found a way to get a loophole through the uh, CBA so he said, I'm going to uh, trade you to, I can't remember the order, trade you to Pittsburgh, who's going to trade you to Buffalo, who will trade you back to Edmonton. And it's all going to happen over the weekend, but it's going to be all a paper transaction because I can't trade you to one team and they trade you right back to Edmonton. I have to have a third team involved. So he said, you could either change hotels in Edmonton or fly home to Toronto to spend time with your family and lay low. So I, I went home for the weekend. It all happened just the way he said. And I'm nervous. I get, something's going to go wrong. Something has to go wrong here. <laughs> and I'm going to have to go somewhere else or wherever. And sure enough, the weekend went through. The waiver draft went through. I got traded to those two teams. I came back for the team pitcher in Edmonton on the Monday morning. 
And the reporters are going, yeah, you went to Buffalo for chicken wings. You went to Pittsburgh for beer, then came back. Okay, really, where did you go? What'd you do? <laughs> yeah. well, well, you know, I it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, looking back at, at the 80s, for instance, in the National Hockey League, there weren't that many guys that were smart like slats and that knew how to have conversations with the players, knew exactly what to say or what not to say. Most of them were gruff, hard-nosed coaches that just basically, you know, but there was very few that were like slots that, that actually would talk to the players. And uh, like, like you said, you know what you did wrong? Yeah. Okay, don't let it happen again. Yeah, that just, like you said, no that, like you said, that era, the coach, it was all about intimidation, the coaches and, and the, on yeah. the ice. It was very, you had to be intimidating or you had to do something to survive. And it was a totally different way the game was thought and played. And, and slots, I, I really can't recall many times where he blew his top and, and blew up the guys. There was, the, the team was the closest team I've ever seen, like a family where, Everybody knew what their role and jobs were, and everybody just did it. And Slats always, always praised uh, or preached, if we win, we all win. If uh, if we one guy does well, we all do well. There, there's toughness in a group. We didn't have you didn't have to wait for the Semenko to do it or the McSorleys or McClellan, uh, Kevin McClellan or those guys. So his thought process was different and he always he always said if you win you'll you'll get rewarded and and I can't complain about the contracts and how we were looked after in Edmonton and for just winning but it became it became an expectation that you were expected to win and it was a it was a bad year if you didn't win the cup like that but when we lost in 89 after Gretzky got traded it was like devastated it's like we we just thought we were going to win. We were supposed to win. We, we could be down by four or five goals going into the third period, and you still knew you're going to win that game. You'd never doubt it. You weren't going to win. Well, I was going to ask you, besides the winning atmosphere, what was the immediate difference in culture compared to playing in Toronto? Did you notice going to Edmonton? Well, Toronto, you have the the media for one, so you're always you're always under the microscope. There's there were so many newspapers, there's so many t- TVs channels uh, radio shows so they always knew um i guess where you were what you did if you played bad you couldn't hide and edmonton was edmonton was the same because i think hockey overall in canada it's, it's basically the national sport and you're a hero in edmonton you, you'd go out everybody knew who you were but you never felt the pressure and but again you're winning so it's hard to feel the pressure when you're winning but uh the pressure you felt more than anything was it was within the room like and it wasn't even pressure like I, I would have felt bad if I left the squid down if I didn't come to his aid or if I if he turned the puck over and I didn't break up the two-on-one or um, anything like that it was always more just the pressure within the room than it was even from the coaches or um, from the fans or from the media and Kevin Lobe and my partner at the early stages because we were kind of the shutdown pair if certain games he would remind me remember what our job is and 
that was my job. That was my job to, to hit guys, block shots, and clear the front of the net and move the puck up. And that's all I cared about. It's great. So, Craig, you were uh... – <laughs> I have to laugh about this because I'm sorry, but so here you are in Edmonton. You get, well, three pitchers taken with a great big silver trophy called the Stanley Cup in front of you. When I'm in Toronto and I'm getting team pitchers taken with TC Puck, Harold's dog in the goddamn pitcher in front of me. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at this picture. All the pitchers I have have the dog in the picture. And I'm like, you know, I look at them now and I'm like, you know, th th that was ridiculous. <laughs> it was, it was, it was really night and day between, I guess the two organizations. But uh, again, like you said, slats and the Oilers, I think were really ahead of their time. The style of the Oilers played yeah, is, yeah. is more like the style of today's game, even though there were still the clutching yeah. and grabbing and, and the hitting and the fighting, but like our practices weren't long, but it was, it was just fast paced, always moving. And I think that even helped me with my skating just to, to have to play line rushes again or one-on-ones or two-on-ones with Gretzky, Messier, Anderson, Curry, Tickenden, uh, the list goes on and on. So it's, it was just so different that I think they, like uh, Squid said, they were just so far ahead of their time on, on how they approached the game. Well, keeping all that in mind with the way you practice, the way you guys played, sort of the mental being that, that say there and the players had amongst each other as a group, I don't want to say you weren't accountable all the time as players and, and what your role was as a player, but because of all those things combined, do you feel that that took away some of the excess burden of failure or fear as a result of all of that? Absolutely. I think, yeah, because... Uh, we go back to what uh, Sid said to me from my first training camp as an 18 year old, just do your job, just know what your role is. And guys, when at my time in Edmonton, we, we had some pretty high draft picks in uh, Dan Curry, Sean Van Allen, David Haas, who were all, I think they all scored like 60, 70 goals in junior were offensive centermen. And they're coming to Edmonton when you got, Gretzky, Messier, McTavish, and whoever happened to be the fourth line centerman, yeah. they were never going to get a shot to play in Edmonton. And <laughs> I, I would literally, and I remember going up to all three of them at different times, and they'd be hanging their head after practice or something. And I would tell them my story that you're just in a situation that you don't have a chance to play. I said, Try to get out whenever you can to an organization that needs a centerman and work your ass off, wait for that opportunity and grab it when it's there. And Sean Van Allen ended up having, I think, the best career of the three. Uh, Haas, I think, played a little bit in L.A. and Curry played a little bit, I think, uh, as well. But it's – and I think that goes back to the mentality of the draft. The teams draft what they think is the best player at that time of their pick instead of looking at their roster, okay, well, we got an agent defenseman or defense core or centerman. Maybe our first pick should be the best centerman mm -hmm. that's available at that time. And, and the, the big mistake the NHL does, and I still see it today, uh, and when I was scouting, same thing. You would have a Calgary uh, – Marty St. Louis is a great example. So he's in uh, – I think – did you have him squid? 
Yeah, yeah. I had those things, John. Yeah. yeah, Bumpton, Calgary's farm team. And I remember I was scouting, yeah. and I, I I went and talked to Squid after about Marty. And I would see when Marty went up and played in Calgary, and they'd plop him on the fourth line. And I, I would go to Dudley and say, this is wrong. The whole mentality of the NHL is wrong. When you call up a player, a player on your first line gets hurt, they move everybody up. And they call up a guy from the minors like Marty St. Louis, plop him on the fourth line instead his abilities is to play in the top two lines. So he doesn't get an opportunity. He doesn't score. They send them back down. So we had a chance to get him in Tampa. We, we grabbed it as soon as we could. That sound like Bruce. You know, it's, funny, it's funny. You mentioned that because uh, I think if you look at the NHL today, that's exactly how they do things now is that if a top six forward goes down, they call up the best top six forward that, can replace that guy. If it's a bottom six guy, they don't call up the best player. They call up a guy who's used to playing in the bottom six. And, and to your other point, uh, you know, knowing your job, you know, we all were the best players growing up on our teams pretty much all the way through our hockey days. But when you get to the NHL, that's not the case anymore. So yeah. you got to find a role and, you said it best, like, you know, you've got to find where you fit in on that team and plug that hole that they need plugged. And whether it's something that you don't like to do or, or not, you just need to do it in order to play in the National Hockey Yeah, it comes down to how, how bad you really want it, how bad you want to play. Guy Carbonell is a great example. As an offensive junior player, yeah. became a stellar defensive player. Uh, centerman that ends up in the hall of fame fighters are another good example a lot of fighters that you talk to they they weren't pure goal scorers but they put up some decent numbers in junior but they realize if they want to play in the nhl there's a lot of guys with decent numbers in junior that aren't going to make it so they got to find out and find another way to play well the guy we always use the example is bruce Boudreau. he didn't hear me there squid but he was the same example i mean prolific yeah, yeah. Yeah. They bring him up the leaves and play him. He'd be driving a cement truck. Yeah. You know, yeah. Doug Jarvis, look at him. He was leading a scoring in the OHL every year. And he went to Montreal as a third line defensive centerman. And, you know, he adjusted. Yeah. Look, actually, as our good old pal. Actually, when Mike, when Gabby got called up, yeah. he was playing with the cement trucks. He wasn't a cement <laughs> truck. The two guys he was playing he was with driving with it. cement truck. He was driving it. He was in the middle. <laughs> yeah. He was a pilot and he had two wings. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, our good old friend Jim McKenney sums it up best. I don't know if you've ever heard this one before, Craig, about the definition of being a hockey player. Half the game is mental; the other half is being mental. <laughs> yeah, so if you've got that down, Pat, you can certainly make it. Now, looking back, did you realize at the time? Now, you, as you are, you know, you're sitting here at, at this time of your career after your career, how good those Oilers teams really were? Or was it just a matter of filling in the mis missing peaches, pieces each year and just moving on? Well, I think when you're there, you don't – I guess you didn't really look at the – you knew you had a really good team, yeah. a great team, but you didn't really know how good it was or how good it would stand up over time or history uh, until, I guess, as time went on and it was towards the end of my career or after I retired and you – I think uh, Detroit had a pretty good run after us. Um, Chicago and LA had little little runs, 
But other than that, you got to probably go back to the Euler times. And then before that, the Islanders run to find, I guess, dominance of, of the sport at the, of that time. So you never really appreciated it until after the fact. And then when you're playing, you're just, you're in the moment and thinking you're, you're 20 something years old, you're going to just play forever. Well, so uh, on that line, based on winning, what was the key ingredient to keep those teams on the right page for success? I mean, while losing is contagious, so is winning, but teams can easily be seduced by the trappings that come with winning. How did you guys avoid all that for so long? Well, I think it was a lot of it was was the sheer talent. It was we had kind of a model in Edmonton: play hard, party harder, and <laughs> and we did. But, but we were on the road a lot again. There, there, we, there was no such thing as a charter plane back then until we got into the finals. Did we charter? So anytime we came out east, if we were playing, say in I don't know uh, Washington, we would leave first thing in the morning from Edmonton. We didn't get into we had to go through a connection. We never got into Washington until dinner time during rush hour. We checked into the hotel, went to eat, and then back to the hotel. That was your day. And then you couldn't leave right after the game. So you'd stay the night and then leave the next day to go to where either play a game or to have the day between games. So we had a lot of time, more time on the road than I guess they do now, which also brought the team closeness together. There was times that we'd go on the road and uh, one of the captains or somebody would say, team meeting at so-and-so place, come for one or stay all night. It's up to you. So getting back to the, the thing I was talking about earlier with slots and everything, and uh, I think if you look at the team, like him and Muckler were very good at acquiring players and putting them into holes that – they needed to fill. And I think more so than anything else, I think everybody on that hockey team, it's to my knowledge anyway, and from playing against them and talking to some of the guys, you know, because I was at all-star games with a bunch of the guys from the Oilers and, and so on at Canada Cup uh, training camp. And they all said the same thing. They said, everybody has a role. Everybody is doing their role and nobody complains about it. And well, I guess you can't complain when you're winning Stanley Cups. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I mean, everybody wants to be a bigger guy, for instance, in, in you know, in the whole scheme of things. But they took lesser roles in order to win. And I, I think that was probably the biggest thing that, that you guys had in Edmonton. Yeah. Well, back then, the money wasn't anywhere near what it is now. So you really truly played a for the love of the game and B to win the Stanley cup. And that was the only reason we all played for the most part. And I remember one time, I can't remember which cup it was, might've been the second or third. And I'm not going to say the name, but the guy was pissed off after we won the cup and it was his first cup winning. And I couldn't understand why until I found out later was he was pissed off because he didn't play much in that game or the, that series. And so he didn't get his expected ice time. It's like, you gotta be fucking shit me. You just won the Stanley cup first time in your life and may never ever win it again. And you're pissing them on it because you didn't get the ice time you wanted. It's like, uh, I, don't, I, would, I don't even have time for you. He ended up not being back the next year, but it was like, I wanted to punch him right in the goddamn head. 
Well, so along those lines, <laughs> the leadership in that room must have been extremely strong from the obvious guys. But what made their leadership presence so strong? I mean, there's a perfect example of where it would come into play. Yeah, it was, again, Gretzky was a leader by more example. Messi was more a vocal leader. And then Kevin was kind of, Kevin, Kevin was kind of in between doing both. Um, and then you had trickle down effect of the guys that have been there for a while. So it was, it was kind of a learning ex experience. Cause it's like you, you hear a lot of you, it's easy to lose. You can take 20 guys off the street and lose. That's easy to do. And it's hard to win and win in big times. And you really do have to learn how to win. And I hear it a lot from teams who even today trying to learn how to win or what it takes to win. And it really, it, I think it helped me prolong my career because of going through that process, learning how to win and getting into scouting and help build the Tampa Bay team to win the cup. So I, I saw it and what, what it takes. And my last year I was in Dallas um, and the guys, it was a great team. It was probably the closest team I've seen since the Edmonton days. And they were all talking the same thing. How did we get over the hump? They, they go so far in the, in the playoffs and then they would lose. And it's really is that you really got to, you got to lose. You have to learn from the, those losses and why you lost to be able to take it to the next level. And I remember the guys in Edmonton before I got there, they said when they lost the finals to the Islanders and they figured the Islanders would be all hoopling it up and celebration after they yeah. won. And they walked by the dress room and they saw the guys buried in ice packs everywhere. And yeah. they, the team would go through the wall for each other. They would go through the wall to do anything to win that cup. And I think the Oilers seeing that their mind frame changed that they can't just win it on skill alone. They got to put all the pieces together because you can't have four centermen that are like Wayne. You need to have uh, someone like even ticketing on Wayne's mind. He was the checker. He shut down the other team's top uh, forward. So ticketing would play center and RN and play the defensive responsibility and then he had the green light to go on the offense. And Kevin and I would pick up their top forwards at their blue line and play them all the way back into our end until Tiki got back to help out. We played three guys down low. But you, you really got to learn, and part of it is losing, to see what it takes to, to win because it, it is hard work. And you have to have that will and a stronger will than the guy you're playing against. Well, I was going to yeah, say, I think, uh, oh, go ahead, Squid. I don't think there's any better way to put it, Craig. I think, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, I mean, you could go and say that that works in the business industry. It works in everything. You yeah. got to want to be better than the guy you're, you're up against. And I think that's the bottom line is that when you step on the ice or you go to a meeting, uh, you have to be better than the other guy yeah. uh, every day. And, and that's the only way you're going to have uh, the ultimate success. Yeah, for sure. It, it does carry over to the business world and everything you do. If, if you, once you're competitive like that, it's hard to lose it. Well, I was going to say a story about leadership. I read about Mark Messi. I had never seen this before from anybody else, but 
there was a, a time where he didn't, he was hurt. So he stayed back in Edmonton and the team was on the road. So a young kid, I don't know who the kid was, but a young kid was brought up to replace him that night in the lineup. It was his first game and he also scored. So the kid goes back to the hotel room later that night and there sitting on the table is a bottle of champagne with a congratulations note from Mark Messier. I mean, who does that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mess, Mess was a, a good leader. A, a quick story. We're in uh, Hart, no, big uh, Boston one night. We played after the game. We're in a bar. This guy comes up to us and says he owns a strip bar in, in Hartford. And we're playing in Hartford in a couple of days, two days later. So next morning we're getting on the bus and bus into Hartford and had the day off. The guy, so the guy says, "Yeah, I'll, I'll send a, a limo." And uh, no, sorry, the his strip place was in Springfield. So said, "I'll bring a, a limo to your hotel, pick you up, and take it to the place." Where you say, "Yeah, yeah, sure." The guy won't show up. Sure enough, he comes. It was with a in a van full of beer, and there was myself, Fear, Ticken, and Anderson. We all end up going up there. So it gets close to 11 o'clock, which was the unwritten curfew rule. And we're thinking, okay, well, it's going to take us X amount of time to get back. We got to leave now or stay. So we end up staying the whole night. Uh, we end up coming back with the guy. He brought back booze and girls. And it was basically an all-night affair thing going on in the hotel. So I end up couldn't even get up for breakfast in the morning. Went out for the morning skate. I think I was still drunk. I couldn't barely stand up. I didn't go to the team meal to eat lunch because I wanted to sleep. Went right to the room and slept. So we played that night against Hartford. I get a rare goal. Fierzy stood on his head. Tickenden scored. Andy scored. Thinking, okay, all is good. Right after the game, went right back to the room, right back to bed to get more sleep. And all of a sudden, I hear this yelling and screaming and banging going on in the hallway. Wake me, wakes me up. I go to the door, and Messier and Anderson are fighting face to face in the hallway. And Mess is yelling at him because he heard what we did. He was all pissed off at what we did. <laughs> they were just the cuffs out in the hallway. Probably because you didn't invite him. <laughs> Probably. <yeah. laughs> So who kept you guys loose on that team? Like there's obviously you guys are winning. So winning is fun, obviously, as we've suggested. So, and you guys were known as a bit of a party team. Rick's team is a party team, a well-known party team, but they just didn't win as much as you guys did. Who kept you guys loose and kept it kind of fun in the room? I think you right always have, you always have a couple guys that are a comic relief. Uh, Daryl Ray, who does the uh, color commentating for the uh, Dallas team now. Yeah. A couple of years, he was the backup. He was, one of those comic relief guys that was always kept the guys loose, loose and goosey. But you always have uh, the guys that we had a ping pong table in the middle of the table. Guys would play ping pong right up to game time. Uh, music was always going. There was never any tightness or pressure. And um, a, a good example was after I left Edmonton, the first place I go to was Chicago. And Daryl Sutter, who's back in Calgary, was the coach at the time. So we're we're uh, downstairs because the old Chicago Stadium had to go downstairs to the dressing room. So we're downstairs in the room for the morning skate. The music's on. Guys are taping up their sticks and just getting ready for the morning skate. Daryl walks in. He slams the door, turns off the music, 
and starts walking the room screaming at everybody. Say, you're not fucking ready for this game. You're going to get your asses kicked. You guys don't know what it takes to win, blah, blah, blah. Steph Amato's beside me. I look at him and said, is he for real? He, does he know the game's at 7.30 tonight, not fucking 11 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> but th- that's the mentality of one team compared to where I just came from. <laughs> well, Squid, you can add to that. <laughs> well, there's no question. I mean, I've had – I mean, well, the, forget the guys in Toronto. Uh, then Mike Keenan in Chicago, uh, which is very similar to, to Sutter. Uh, I had Rick Dudley in Buffalo, who, although Rick, I loved him as a coach. I thought he was well prepared. He, he was a good coach. But boy, oh boy, I'll tell you, could he, he would lose his shit, like at the stupidest little things and, and flip out. Like I remember one time we're, we're down one nothing after the first period and he comes in and just goes around the room and rips every single guy. And, and we're down one nothing. And it's like, but it was common for him to come in and, and let loose between periods. Even sometimes we had a two nothing lead after the first period and he'd come in and he would always find a reason to yell at us for whatever we did on the ice. And uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I, but I grew up with that in my NHL career in Toronto. So the coaches back then were all the same. And, uh, I, you know, so I, I was used to it. I kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. And I worried about, you know, the way I was going to play and how hard I was going to play. I didn't have to think about, you know, what the coach was going to say to me because I didn't need someone to kick me in the ass to get me going because I motivated myself. And, uh, you know, so it was, it, it kind of sucked, but again, I just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other and go out, do my job, and not worry about it. Yeah, the, the only time I've seen it really work, that that hard nose imitation, imitating uh, intimidation coaching style was in Dallas. And Hitch was not really like those other coaches, but he he would be a yeller and a screamer. Um, and he, he would pick on the superstars, which was really unheard of. Uh, he, he would always be going after Newland Dyke and Modano and all these guys. And one time Newendike said something to me and uh, I said, you know what? I said, he could yell at me as much as he wants and it won't really matter. But I said, he can't yell at you and Zuboff and uh, Modano and guys like that and do it on a consistent basis. I said, you're the only guys that can stand up for not just you, but stand up for the team because we can't say anything. We'll, be out of the lineup we'll be in the press box we'll be benched we'll be in the minors you guys you can't say or do anything you guys have to speak up at, on behalf of the team and then finally it was like the, the that team won the next year of the cup and what how he coached basically brought the team together that they kind of won it in spite of him because they, they try to stand up as a group together on the ice and and against the coaching staff a little bit and that's the only time I've really seen it work that way. But that was, again, that was certain type of players that were there that were A, talented, B, close, and knew how to win and stuck together to do it. Well, your last bit of time in Edmonton, all of a sudden you guys win, you get your third, you get your, before you get your third one, Gretzky has moved. 
within a few years, Coffee, Messier, Anderson, all the big guys are all gone. What was going through your thought process at the time? You're thinking, all right, maybe it's time for myself to maybe take that next step and move on. And then you ended up in Chicago. Well, the one thing Slats did always say was he was never going to let the Oilers become the Islanders. And what he meant by that was the Islander players stayed together forever, um, even past their prime and past their value in a trade. And then all of a sudden when they, they're gone and you're bringing in all these young kids that well, again, with the, with the Leafs all at one time, it's a hard recipe to, to have success right out of the gate, and it takes time. So Slats always said that he would never let the Oilers become that. And even when we were winning uh, from the first cup to the last cup, the roster was a little bit different, and the core always stayed together, but some of the parts always changed. So I've always kind of learned that as well, that, if you have an opportunity like that to win the cup, it's the one time you can walk together in history as a, that group of individuals as a team, because it'll never happen again. Cause you know, inevitably someone's going to be gone off of that roster. And I've always kind of kept that in the back of my mind too. So you could see the parts starting to go. No one ever thought Gretzky would be traded. It was, kind of unheard of who would ever in the right mind trade Wayne Gretzky and <laughs> sure sure enough it happened and um after after that happened it was you could see some of the parts starting to to, to leave and then the Oilers weren't winning anymore so it was like it was it was a good time to get to get out at that time I was there seven years so it was a good seven years well, I don't know if you were around at the time but Ballard actually traded for the whole team at once and they stopped it that what? He traded for the whole team, Edmonton, with talking oh. for a pile of money. <laughs> yeah. And John Ziegler, well, somebody stopped him on it, but it, but th- that was the rumor with Ballard making noises to trade for the whole team. Um, <laughs> what sort of what led to you at Chicago? Obviously, you were there for a short stint and you moved on. What, what as you're getting on in the latest stages, like walk us through the couple stops you had, but were you then sort of being looked at as sort of that veteran guy to come in and work with, especially where you'd come from and the success that you enjoyed? Were they looking to you to sort of be at a bit of a mentor along with the ability you brought as a player? Yeah, I think very much so. And that's why I said earlier, I think winning the cup also helped prolong my career because I ended up playing until I was uh, 36, going on 37. So I had a, a good long career. And when I, the, the short time I was in Chicago, first of all, when I got traded, I didn't report to Chicago. I think it was almost a month before after the trade happened before I reported it. And Squid can t- tell you too, back then, if you played in Canada, your contract was a Canadian dollars. If you played in U.S., your contract was American. So before I reported it, my agent and I told uh, Bob Polford we wanted to re-sign my deal because I just signed a long-term deal in Edmonton a couple years ago in Chicago. So it's an American contract. So if I got traded to back to say Toronto, I would be on American money, not go back down to Canadian money and have to take a pay cut. So at first they wouldn't do it. They finally did. So I think I upset them a little bit by doing that and not reporting right away. And then uh, I played a lot when I first got there and then they brought in a couple D in the off season. And I just didn't get along with Sutter. So I told my agent to get me the fuck out of here. I can't, I don't, 
<laughs> it's going from a country club to a friggin' the night a nightmare in Chicago at the time. And we had a good team, a well, good player. Pulley, Pulley was a very difficult person to deal with to when it came to contracts or anything else. I mean, he was throwing around money like it was his own. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I think at the time, I can't remember, I think I was making 300. And I had a 43-goal season. And my contract was up. So Bill Waters, who was my agent at the time as well, he calls Pulley and they start talking. Pulley offers me 260, 260, 265, a three-year deal with a $40,000 pay cut after a 43-goal season. So, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, and then we go all summer and then we get a, a arbitration date set. And when he finds that out, he goes crazy and he, he tells Bill, you know what's going to happen if he goes to arbitration. And he said, or, yeah, he said, you're going to trade him. Two days later, I had a new contract, three and a quarter, three and a quarter, 350. <laughs> and I go, that wasn't that hard now, was it? Why did it have to go all goddamn summer? <laughs> yeah, I know. Old school again. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I end up in uh, Buffalo. Uh, early October, um, and I found out a couple of young defensemen were supposed to make it or play in Buffalo and help, and they didn't pan out. So Muckler was uh, with Buffalo at the time, so he's the one that brought me to Buffalo, and we actually had a few spoiler players on that team at that time as well. So then I was, I was here for three years in Buffalo before leaving again. Yeah, and how did that end up uh, the last couple of years? I mean, you, you, you played. Well, you know what, you they could probably use you right now. <laughs> yeah, they need fat, old, and slow right now. <laughs> um, Craig, you played for a lot of coaches over the years. Um, did any of them, and not that you had to be buddies with them, but did any of them have a lasting impression you as a person, not only as a coach, but how they handled everyday life by the way they handled the ups and downs of winning and losing, dealing with 20 to 25 individuals on any given moment, mood swings, addressing different situations that arise. I mean, you took it all in over all those years. Somebody yeah. had that impact on you? Yeah, I think, I think my top guys have to be, well, Slats be one. Um, uh, John Muckler, for sure. I had him in Buffalo and Edmonton. Um, and I have the utmost respect for Muck. When I, le when I left Buffalo, it was, right, it was my third year. It was at the trade deadline. And Muck, Muck called me up and said, the Sabres aren't going to make the playoffs at that time. And then... Uh, Mark called me up and said, I have a deal on the table to a, a team that's going to be in the playoffs. If you want, uh, if you want to play, uh, keep playing in the playoffs. If you want to stay, I'll pull the, pull the deal off the table. I said, I told him, I said, I, the only reason I play is to win the cup. That's my main motivation. So I said, I, I want, I want to play in the playoffs, take the deal if you can. And then, Sure enough, it got traded to Winnipeg and we were in the playoffs. But um, but that was the first time I've ever got a call from a GM to, again, he could have been blowing smoke up my ass, but it was appreciated that he at least made the, the time and the effort to, to do that call. Well, Squid, you didn't get the same so thing from Buckler. Why wouldn't he do that for me then? <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> Your conversation wasn't quite the same, was it? Yeah, 
Actually, John Tortorella. No, my conversation was nobody wants you. I said, okay, put me on waivers. He goes, I already did. I said, yeah, you put me on recallable waivers, which means that if anybody claims me, you recall me and try to trade me, whatever. He goes, yeah, but it's the same thing. And I said, John, I said, you know it's not the same thing. I said, please, just, you know, whether you have to pick up some of my salary, whatever you need to do, just if, if you could move me, I would, it would be greatly appreciated. And I was very nice about it. I said, I would really appreciate it if you could trade me to a good team that I think I could probably chip in in the playoffs and maybe help them go a little ways in the playoffs. And, but he had no intentions of moving me whatsoever. And, uh, and then after that season, uh, bought me out of the last year of my contract. Yeah. yeah, I had the John Tortorella in Buffalo too. He was the assistant coach, so he he handled yeah. the defenseman at the time. And I don't know. Everyone says he's old school, hard nose, and all that. But I I've known Torch for a long time, and again he treated. I think you like coaches based on how you were treated too, and he he treated me well at my time in Buffalo, and he he would tell me stay on the ice for the whole penalty kill. Don't come off. I don't be coming off. If you see something on the ice, let me know what, what it is because you're, you're going to see something different on the ice of how it happens versus what they might see in the bench or how they would see it up in the press box. So he was always good that way and let you have a chance to have your 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 voice or your opinion on things. Where uh, And one time I had uh, Donnie Lever as my defense coach in Buffalo, and I love Donnie. He's a great guy too. I remember one time I got off the ice and he came right down and he's yelling in my ear about a mistake on the ice. And I turned to him and I said, Donnie, how many fucking games have you played defense in the NHL? He said, none. I said, shut the fuck up. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) Well, it's funny you mentioned Torch because Torch was the assistant when I went to Buffalo with Rick Dudley. And and I love Torch. Yeah. But I got to tell you, there's a big difference between Torch back then and Torch right now. Yeah. I mean, the way that he talks to the media and that sort of thing. Of course, the assistant coaches never talked to the media back then. <laughs> uh, but but I love Torch. I, I, I thought he was great. I still think he is. I think he's just get, you know, I, I, I think people look at what he does and I think they, they, they think it's the wrong thing to do. But all he's trying to do is get the best out of all the players that exactly. he has on his team. Yeah. You know, he, ca- he cares about the team would, and wants the team to yeah. do well. He really wants the individual to do well. But the end goal is not really the individual as it is the team. And, and that goes back to my earlier days with Platts. If the team has success, every individual on the team has success. But you have to win as a team in order to get that. And that's a hard thing to get individuals to buy into, to, to get that winning attitude that that's the first and foremost and only thing that matters in a game is, is winning. Well, picking, up on that, picking up on that thought, Craig, I was going to say, so I didn't mean to cut you off. The, we used the coaches. Was there a player you learned from or you watched throughout your career? You were sitting for a little bit at times. How you carry, how he carried themselves as a pro, not only on the ice but off the ice, and dealt with the everyday up and downs of being a professional hockey player. Was there anybody well, that you looked well, to? Yeah, I don't know if it individually, but as a whole, again, that, that Edmonton team and yeah, fair enough. it's 
it's it's a fine line between cocky or um, arrogant, and people might say a lot of the Oilers or the or some individual on that team were that, but we never saw that. We never acted like that in our minds. We we always we if we lost we lost with class. If we won we won with class, and it was always kind of that was ingrained in my my mind. So when I coached my kids or when I coached the, the girls pro hockey team or anybody, I've always ingrained that into their minds. You, if you win, it's not a big celebration and a big party. It's, it's even keel. You just keep your highs and lows very steady. There's no peaks and there's no valleys. And that's the way you have to go in, in any sport you play in. And you have to have that confidence how you walk, how you play, how you talk, but it's not an arrogance. It's not a cockiness. It's, it's, and it's such a fine line. Yep. But you you mm -hmm. kind of learn that. Uh, I learned that kind of attitude in Edmonton too. Can you add to that squid? Well, I mean, there, I played with a lot of good players and, and for the most part, I, I would say that hockey players were, well, for the, again, I'm saying for the most part, they didn't get, no matter how good they were, they never got cocky. Yeah. You know, if you, if you knew Mario Lemieux or you knew Gretz or you knew Messier or you knew any of the top players, Brian Trottier, Boston, they weren't cocky or arrogant. They were confident, you know, and that's how they carried themselves off the ice as well as on the ice. So by watching how these guys you know, looked after themselves and carried themselves. That's, that's kind of what I saw. And that's what I said, you know what? I like that. They're confident. They're confident in their ability. They're confident about who they are when they're off the ice. That's how they carry themselves. That's how I want to be. Fantastic. Well, we, we want to thank you, Craig, for joining us for so long. We just want to keep it for a couple more minutes. So we're getting, just getting down to the wine. We could talk to you all night about some of this stuff, but on a lighter side now, now you played with some characters over the years, I'm sure. What are some of the best chirps you may have heard? And some of the guys like Kent, you played with guys like Linsman, who's been known to rattle his mouth, and Essentikinen, and Chelios, and Ronek. You got a whole barrage of characters. I mean, you must have heard some great cracks over the years. Yeah, if I can only remember half of them. <laughs> that's, like, that's like trying to repeat a joke. I can't remember half the jokes that come out in the punchlines. Um, Tickenden had his own language, and it's good to tell you that. It's like if he's yelling at somebody, he's, he, to his credit, he can speak Finnish, some Swedish, some English, but when he gets going, it kind of all mixes together, and yeah. we, we, we called it Tikkanese. It was his own language. So there was a saying of... Uh, when you got running around in your own end, like you're running around like a Chinese fire girl. So Ticken then one time came in and was yelling at the guy, stop running around like a Chinese fireplace. And it's like, what, what? And so now from now on, that point on, we all started calling it a, a Chinese fireplace instead of a Chinese fire girl. Well, that's <laughs> funny. Rick. You, you, you bring that up, Craig, and it's kind of funny because we're playing one night and there was a little scrum in the corner. The whistle had gone and everything. And he's yelling at one of the guys on our team. And we, there's like four 
or six or eight guys standing there. And he's just going to town. I forget who it was. I couldn't understand a goddamn word he was saying. And I just stood there and I went, like, what the hell is he saying? What language is he talking? <laughs> because like you said, he would mix the Swedish, the Finnish, the English all together. And it was like, like a, a bowl of chili or something, you know? Yeah, well, many times on the ice, we had other guys on the team ask, what the hell did he just say? And we don't know either. Now, who were some of the characters? Oh, yeah, you obviously played some characters. And he said, who was the, one of the better pranksters you played with? And what was one of his uh, ploys? Oh, there was a, I can't remember who they all were, but some of the ones were the, well, the foam, put the, the shaving cream on the yeah. phone things, or uh, leaning the bucket of water on the door at the hotel room. Okay, uh, I heard that one yet. Yeah, um, so they get a, like a trash can full of water, lean yeah. it up the, yeah. the door, knock on the door and you open it. Uh, there was a good one in, actually in, we we're in New Jersey. I can't remember who did it. It happened to Dave Hannon though. And he must've done something to somebody. So morning skate, I can't remember who it was that did it. They grabbed all his dress clothes and they took it way up in the rafters up in the press box in New Jersey and tied it all up in knots all around the, the rafters up there. So when he's getting get, gets out of the shower and he's ready to get dressed, he's got no clothes. He didn't notice till later. So he had to put on a tracksuit and he's looking around the dress and finally they, they finally told him and you could see him going way up there and he's trying to get the knots out of the clothes to get him out off the rafters. <laughs> Oh boy. We had to write all this stuff down to remember it all. There was so much, so much shit. Yeah, we've heard some beauties over yeah. the years. Now, three Stanley Cups, you guys must have, uh, like, there must have been some pretty good celebrations. Any, now, did anybody sort of predate Ovi with uh, the uh, making snow angels in the fountain? Did you guys have any crazy annex like that going on during your tenure? Um, yeah, one time we won. Well, after winning, we had the team picture with the cup at the Northlands Coliseum. So, right across the street at that time, there was that I can't remember the hotel name, the Forum, maybe it was like a cheaper, smaller yeah. little hotel. Yeah. It had a restaurant that was actually pretty good, and then there was a strip bar there. So, right after the team picture, we went to the strip bar, took the cup with us. It ended up right on the center stage, and this one girl was dancing. <laughs> So we didn't think too much about it till the next day in the Edmonton Sun, there's a picture of a stripper dancing around the Stanley Cup on the front page of the Edmonton Sun the next morning. <laughs> we thought the owner must have, someone must have called the Edmonton Sun to come take a picture. We didn't even see anyone come in to take a picture with it. It was, I don't know, some of the stories of what happened with the cup. It's, we And back then, we didn't have the cup keeper. So it was basically free-for-all and do whatever you want with the cup. Um, well, I can only imagine what I would do if I ever won a Stanley Cup. And I <laughs> I wouldn't even want to explain what I would probably do. But back in my younger days, it probably would have gotten a little crazy. Um, I'm, I'm betting that you would have. One, one morning, I'm driving up this one street. It was like a one way this way and then a boulevard in the middle and then two lanes going the other way. And it was in the morning, I was going, and all of a sudden, I look over, 
And I see Glenn Anderson sitting in a lawn chair with a beer in his hand. It's like nine or 10 in the morning with the Stanley Cup in front of him. And he's just drinking away still and people are honking their horns and yelling at him. And he's still hammered for the night before. <laughs> now, speaking of which, in Edmonton, what was it like? You came from Toronto, which is kind of the mecca of sort of fan recognition for players and everywhere you go. Edmonton's a smaller place, but during that time, you guys were rock stars, I'm sure, walking around. Like, did it get a little overwhelming at times? It, it was it was very much like Toronto, just on a, probably a smaller scale because there's so many fans in Toronto. And win, lose, or draw, Toronto fans are probably the best fans in, in the league. They love their Leafs. They grow up with the Leafs, and there's they're everywhere. Actually, the Leaf fans, when I mean everywhere, they're everywhere. Yes. Like when the Leafs would come to Edmonton to play, we may as well wore our away jerseys because it was all Leaf fans. And the Oilers fans were very second to, to none when the Leafs or the original six came to town. But yeah, at Edmonton, it was like anywhere you went, you were recognized. And the, the Eskimos were the same because both teams were winning at that time. But it was, it, again, I was, I've always been humbled and put in my place to remember where I came from. I was a kid that loved the hockey players and wanted autographs and would always try to make time to give autographs or if someone comes to interrupt you during a meal and some people won't do it, some people will do it, but then apologize. And I don't care if they come over, I will always sign for them. So it's, this is something that I guess you either you enjoy doing or don't enjoy doing because there comes a time when it all stops and you, they don't recognize you anymore. Now we're just too old. <laughs> you know, that's funny because I've had people ask me like, I don't know how many times over the years, like, does that bother you when people ask you for autographs like that many times? And I said, nope. I said, when they stop asking, that's when I'll be at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, even today, people send hockey cards to my house or my work and um, still will sign them and send them off. Yeah. Well, you in fact, never... I just got an envelope. I just got an envelope today with a bunch of cards from some guy in the States and Connecticut. And, uh, yeah. you know, they, they show up at the door. I sign them, put them back in the envelope that they put in there, and I send it off. And I don't yeah. think I've ever uh, not done that. No, it comes, it's part of the territory, and you, yeah. you, you, you appreciate it because they appreciate it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, guys. Well, Craig, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Some great insights. Uh, congratulations on a fantastic career. Three Stanley Cups. You've always got those with you. And uh, best going forward, you're still a working guy, still involved in hockey, I think, in a little bit in a small way. Are you still? Uh, not right now. Since my kids are all growing up. They're all done their sports, and I'm not coaching with uh, anything over here right now. So. For, for the time being, anyway, you're just you're on you're on hiatus. <laughs> yeah, there's the always Sabres, Sab the Sabres might be calling you pretty soon. <laughs> Don't move from your phone. Yeah, that's why I just got off the bike. I'm, I'm ever hopeful maybe I'll get that call <laughs> to play defense again. <laughs> there's lots of trades happening before April the 12th, so you could get you may get the call, Craig. The dream may still be alive. Hey, if what's his name, the Zamboni driver Toronto can do it, why can't exactly? We? leave it airs all righty my man listen money thank you so much for joining us uh all the best in the future and uh thanks again craig oh my pleasure thanks for having me on guys great to see you guys thanks craig
Thanks, Thanks a lot, Craig. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see you in the fall when we're playing uh, alumni hockey again. Yeah, let's, let's hope we get some normality and the border opens up soon. Yeah, sounds good. Take Thanks care, guys. Be, be okay. safe. Okay, man. Well, Squid, if there's ever a case made to look at a picture of a guy who exemplifies never giving up on your dream, I think we just spoke to him for the last bit in Craig Muni. Yeah, I think if you looked that up in a dictionary, you'd find his picture there because, uh, <laughs> you know, here's a guy who, you know, got drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs that were not a very good team at the time, was expecting to play there and be a blue liner for them for many years. And then, you know, had to go through those six years in the minors, ends up going to Edmonton, winning three Stanley Cups. Uh, you know, great guy. I, I know Craig very, very well and uh, just a wonderful person. Well, and, and especially if you look at the fact that not only were the, did he get drafted by the Leafs, he's from Toronto, which doesn't mean a lot, yeah. but he knows about what the significance of playing for the team is, but they kept drafting defensemen every year. The team wasn't getting better, and you wouldn't give him a chance. Yeah. No, I, again, like I said, I mean, that was a weekly conversation. Is why in the hell is he and St. Catharines are not up here because – He's better than probably the other guys that we have playing right now, especially defensively anyway. And uh, then, of course, like I said, it got even worse when he ended up going to Edmonton and winning Stanley Cups. And uh, then then all of a sudden it was like, oh. But, hey, you know what? That was our management at the time, and that's the way they they saw it. And, uh, you know, good for Craig that – he was able to get out of there and get to a place like Edmonton where he had some success. Well, and the fact is, you know, there must be hockey gods, as we've always talked about, because think about it. He goes to Edmonton, a couple of standing cups under their belt. They just lost one. But the right guys retire, basically. The right guy gets yeah. sat out. There's a couple other injuries. Next thing you know, he's playing with Kevin Lowe. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you need you need. Uh, sometimes you need a little bit of luck. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I think you, in, in my personal opinion, I think you, you kind of make your own luck by going out every day and, and, and grinding it out and do what you need to do in order to get into the lineup. And eventually you will. Uh, sometimes you need a little help. You need an injury or you yeah. need a guy to get traded or retire. Like he, he said, uh, what happened at Edmonton. And obviously then that gave him a great opportunity to play with Kevin and uh, you know, the rest is history. I mean, those two guys played exceptionally well together. Well, and you know, the funny part about it is we've always talked about this in the show you and I, and with other guys under hockey players always know about other hockey players. And his perfect example is Daryl Sittler coming down to him. Here's this young guy. He didn't have to do that. He comes down beside this young kid in the bench and gives him that little word of advice about what to do to keep his head straight and keep going. And he, that stayed with them. Yeah, I mean, life. yeah, you know what? And, and that's, you know, those are the things that, I mean, I've told many guys basically the same kind of thing. It's kind of like you need to find your role on this team and you need to, you know, be the best at that role yeah. and play it to the best of their, your ability. Don't worry about what everybody else is saying around you and what's going on. Just go out, find that niche that you need to in order to be a good player for this team and help this team win 
and go out and do it day in and day out and night in and night out and you're going to be successful. That's right. And that, 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 that's, I agree with that 100%. Those are the perfect words to be said yeah. to kids today. Well, that's why you you should have been coaching. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You did coach. <laughs> oh, I did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for the Sabres to call me now. <laughs> that is spoke, spoken like a coach. My goodness, you did coach and you might get that call. Who knows? Maybe you don't want that call right now, but who the hell? Oh, I, I would take it. I would take it. I'm sure you would. Well, Squid, we're at that time again where uh, it's, it, it's time just seems to fly by. Uh, we want to thank Craig for joining us today. He was a great guest. We could talk to him all night. Lots of great stories and a terrific, terrific story on its own uh, just for his success that he had in winning those three Stanley Cups. Tune in again next week. We don't know who we have yet. We're just working on it. We have a couple of surprise guests that are going to come up with you. You can tune in on Rick5, his website. We'll have all the podcasts on there for you eventually. My pod, new uh, website, The Ultimate Leafs Fan, does have all the uh, podcasts on there. You can find us on iTunes and all the other your favorite podcast networks. Look for us. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you then.